Well, hey, First Church, I'm excited to be here. Hope you guys are as well. This morning, we have family meeting at our Stone Canyon campus, as well as those who will be joining us later online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them to our time of study today. Well, if you were with us last weekend, you know we launched a new series, which we're calling Who's Your one. And during this series, or throughout the series, we're trying to uncover one truth, and that truth is this, why are we here? This is what we're trying to discover. As a church, why are we here? Some 2,000 years ago, why did God place the church here on the earth? And practically speaking, what does that mean for us today? Why is First Church here at this time in this place? Why are we here Because what I have seen is that many churches, they get distracted by stuff that really doesn't matter to God, and over time, they forget why they're here. That's what we're exploring, and I think in order for us to answer that question of why we're here, we have to look at why Jesus came to the earth, why he came here. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus gives us a purpose statement for his life and his ministry, and look at what he says, Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now in this statement, Jesus reveals why he came, why he came to the earth. He said that he came to seek, to find those who are lost, those who are far from God. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I came for people to seek me. I came for people to find me. Jesus didn't set up camp on the top of some mountain and say, okay, I'm here, and if you want to be saved, come find me. That's not what he did. No, Jesus came to seek those who are far from God so that he could bring them back to God. And as his followers, we're called to do the same. We're called to have the same focus. And that's why Jesus challenged his followers with this question in Luke chapter 15, verse 4. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? See, we serve a leader who is willing to leave the 99 who are safe in the pen to go find that one who's lost, that one who's on the outside, that one who's far from God. And the question is, are we willing to do the same? Because we're not here to be members of a religious club. We're here to be missionaries to our community. See, contrary to what some people think, following Jesus isn't just showing up to church on a Sunday and being entertained and getting your $3 worth of God in. Following Jesus is living life on mission. And it means always being on the lookout for that one, that one who's on the outside, that one who's far from God. And we should be willing to do whatever we possibly can short of sin in order to find that one. That's why Jesus tells us in Luke 14, verse 23, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone, anyone you find to come so that my house will be full. But are we really doing that? Are we known for that? Or have we forgotten why we're here? I shared a stat with you last weekend as we launched this series that over half of churches in America did not add one single convert last year. Now wrap your minds around that. Over half of churches in our country did not add one single convert last year. 
Now, we serve a leader who was willing to leave the 99 to go after the one, but half of churches, people who claim to follow him, did not add one single convert last year. There seems to be a disconnect. Jesus was always willing to go after that one who was isolated, that one who was alone, that one who was broken, that one who was hurting, that one who everyone else ignored or overlooked. He was always seeking that one. And yet over half of churches didn't add one single convert? Why is that? Well, as I mentioned last week, I think it's because the gravitational pull in most churches is typically towards the 99 who are already safe in the pen than that one who's on the outside than that one who's lost. And I think the reason for this is because focusing on the 99, catering to the 99 who are already safe in the pen, that's what's easier. That's safer. That's what's more comfortable. And sometimes we just don't want to do what's more difficult, even though it's what Jesus is calling us, asking us to do. I came across a video not too long ago of this little boy who could just change his reaction, a heartbeat, depending on what his mom asked him to do. His mom wanted him to clean up his toys, and so he would cry and whine. And then when she asked him if he wanted to do something that he wanted to do, he could just turn it off and be happy. Take a look at this video clip real fast. Do you want to color? Do you want to color? Yes? Then we need to clean up, okay? Colin, you want to color? You want to color? Yeah, you need to go clean up your toys. Let me just ask all of our campuses, let me see a show of hands, how many of you guys have ever had that experience with a kid before? You know how it is, right? You know, we can laugh when it comes to a kid, or they can turn it off and on like that, but sometimes that's what happens in the church as well. You know, as long as we're getting our way, as long as we're comfortable, as long as no one asks us to do something we don't want to do or too difficult to do, we're fine and we're happy and we're celebrating and praise Jesus. But the moment that Jesus asks too much of us, the moment that Jesus asks us to do something that's a little bit out of our comfort zone, the moment the church expects us to do something that we think is hard or difficult, we start to whine and complain. See, I think the reason why a lot of churches are not growing in our culture today is simply because people don't want to do the hard stuff that Jesus is calling them to do. Now, they would never say that. They would never come out and say, no, I'm not going to do what Jesus wants me to do. But when rubber meets the road, they would rather focus on their own preferences, their own wants, their own desires, their own comforts, than seek out the 99 who are hurt and lost and isolated and alone. And anytime you allow for your primary focus, anytime a church allows for its primary focus to be on itself rather than on the one who's lost, then we forget what Jesus was really all about. We lose sight of his mission. We lose sight of why he's placed us here. And we don't want that to be the case for First Church. We want to be a church that's more intentional about actually doing what Jesus commissioned us to do, leaving the 99 and go after the one. And so that's why last week I challenged our church with the question, who's your one? Who's that one in your life who's far from God? Who's that one in your life that everyone else ignores? Who's that one in your life who's hurting and broken and empty? Who's that one in your life that if Jesus were physically walking alongside you day by day, he would notice, he would talk to, he would pay attention to? 
Who's that one that God wants you to invest in? Who's your one? Because as we said last week, no one can reach everyone, but everyone can reach someone. And I believe what God wants from the church today is for us to shake up how we do church, shake up the formula for how we do church. And instead of just having great programs and activities and expecting people to come to us, what God wants us to do is to go to them. Because I'm convinced right now in every one of your lives, there is someone, I mean your life, there is someone who is far from God that God wants you to invest in, that God wants you to reach out to. The question is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to do the tough stuff that God is asking us to do? Are we willing to invest in the people God wants us to invest in? And last week when I issued this challenge, who's your one, the response that I received was just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I had people meeting me out at the hub after services and saying, hey, I know who my one is. Will you start praying for this person? And, or somebody, uh, somebody told me that they were going to invite their one to the luau, which took place this past Wednesday night, and their one showed up, which was just awesome. I had people telling me throughout the week last week through emails and by stopping by the office, seeing me around town, hey, I'm looking for my one. I'm on the lookout for that one person God wants me to invest in. I mean, that's just awesome. And I love going into restaurants or shopping at Walmart or wherever this week and seeing different members of our church wearing these green wristbands that we passed out last week that has our mission statement on it. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. If you didn't get one last Sunday, pick one up at the hub as you leave today. We want to give one to everybody. And just seeing those bracelets around town was encouraging to me and exciting for me because I know that God is stirring something among us, that we're excited to live out this mission that Jesus has given us. But it's also great for me because I'm still kind of new and I don't know a lot of people and so when I go around town and see you guys wearing these green braces I'm like hey they go to first church so keep wearing them and I'm gonna if I look down at your wrist there's a reason for that I also like when you guys wear the first church shirts too that helps me out a lot okay but I really believe with all of my heart I'm not just kidding I believe with all of my heart that God is doing something in this place that God is stirring a missional movement among us that God is using us right now to carry out a plan that we can't even see yet. I believe that we are on the verge of doing something very exciting that will transform the 918, that will transform Northeast Oklahoma. And that's why I want to challenge you, don't miss a sermon in this series because we are shaking things up. We are shaking the formula of church up so that we go out and actually live out the commission that Jesus has given us. And especially next Sunday, don't miss next Sunday. I know it's Labor Day weekend and people travel and have stuff going on. And if you're out of town, if you have plans to be out of town already, that's okay. But if you're here, be here because I'm going to preach a very special sermon next Sunday. And I've shared this sermon with a couple different people. And I said, why are you preaching a Labor Day weekend? Save that. Save that for another big Sunday. I feel like I need to do it next Sunday. And so I encourage you, be here. And it's a perfect, and I mean a perfect sermon to invite a friend to come to church with you. You might think, it's Labor Day weekend. They're off on Monday. They might be willing to come, you know. Bring them with you. Don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be a big day for our church. And this series, I hope that it's not just a series where we sit back and say, yeah, that's a good question. Who's your one? And that's a good theme. I, believe, I hope that it's a series that changes us. And I believe that's exactly what's happening. God is stirring a great missional movement within First Church that I think is going to impact the 918 in a way like we never had before. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to do what God wants us to do, what God is calling us to do, I believe we've got to be willing to step outside of our comfort zones. I believe we're going to have to do some things that we don't want to do. I believe we're going to have to take some risks, make some sacrifices in order to reach those who are far from God.
That's what Jesus expects of us, to do anything we can, short of sin, of course, to reach those who are far from God. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in Mark chapter 5. And that's what we're going to study today. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And that's where we're going to be camped out. And as you're turning to Mark chapter 5, let me give you a little bit of background information. See, if we were to back up and read Mark chapters 3 and 4, what we would find is that Jesus is experiencing some huge ministry success. Thousands of people are flocking to him. Thousands of people are following him everywhere he goes. In fact, the crowds are so large that are surrounding Jesus that at one point, Jesus' mother and brothers, his own family, tries to tell him something and they can't get an audience with him. They can't even get to him because the crowds are so thick. The crowds are so big. I'll never forget at the last church that I served, uh, one day my mom was trying to get a hold of me and I was answering my cell phone for some reason so she called our church office. And we had just just hired a new assistant in the office for me and this assistant took my mom's call but the name didn't like ring a bell she didn't put it together it was my mom calling and so my assistant asked my mom on the phone uh you want to speak to chad what is this concerning and my mom in a very loving kind jesus-like way said i'm his mother i don't need a reason and so my assistant oh i'm so sorry i apologize and so she got through (laughs) but you know one person who always has an open door to me when it comes to conversation, it's my mama, you know? And here in this moment, Jesus' own mom can't even get to him. His own brothers can't even have a conversation with him because the crowds are so thick. Jesus is extremely popular. And there's a lot of energy and excitement surrounding Jesus as people are following him and listening to everything that he's saying. And right in the middle of all this excitement and all this enthusiasm and all this energy, Jesus does something kind of strange. Jesus does something that probably none of his disciples expected him to do. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, hey guys, we're going to leave this place, this place where we're having all this success, ministry success. We're going to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake. Now this lake that Jesus mentions, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is a pretty big body of water. And on the other side of the lake where Jesus wanted to go, was somewhere that none of his disciples wanted to go. On the other side of the lake, that was Gentile territory. That's where the Gentiles lived. His disciples, they're first century Orthodox Jews. They are repulsed by the Gentiles. They can't stand the Gentiles. They consider them dirty creatures. They don't want to be around them. They even consider them less than human at times. They don't want to be around these Gentiles. And Jesus says, I want you to get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side where the Gentiles are. And these disciples, they're probably scratching their heads. Why would we do this? Why would we go to a place where you're not known? Why would we go to a place where the people hate our people? Why would we go to a place where they worship false gods? Jesus, what are you thinking? But he's Jesus. And so they reluctantly agree to get in the boat. And as they're traveling across this lake, the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes upon them. Things get even weirder. Because the storm comes upon them and the waves are um, coming over the boat and Jesus calms the storm. He stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves. He calms the storm and the, storms, and the storm quiet down, quiets down. The sea is calm. And the text says, the Bible says that his disciples were terrified. They were scared to death. Not at the storm or not because they just about died. They're scared of Jesus. In fact, in Mark 4.32, we see their reaction. They say about Jesus, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
This is a crazy, out of the ordinary, uncomfortable, unbelievable day. But it's about ready to get even crazier. <laughs> it's about ready to get even more uncomfortable. Pick up with me in Mark chapter 5, verse 2, as Jesus and his disciples, as their boat reaches the other side of the lake. It says in verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Like I said, this gets even weirder. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. The other gospel writers tell us that not only would he cry out day to night and cut himself with stones, he also ran around without any clothes on. This is a weird, awkward, uncomfortable moment for Jesus' disciples. And it probably would be for us too. But it's even more weird for them because remember, these are first century Jews. And I'm not sure if you could come up with a more uncomfortable situation than this one. Because if there was an animal that Jews uh, couldn't stand more than any other, it would, it would be a pig. There was no more unclean, dirty animal in their mindset than in their mind than a pig. Pigs were not just something they couldn't eat. Just coming in contact with them made them ceremonially and religiously unclean. And you know what? When they land on the other side of the lake, as we read on, we discover they landed not only in Gentile country, they landed in pig country. There are pig farms everywhere. So they see pigs all over the place. That's going to make them feel uncomfortable. But then they also land on the outskirts of a cemetery. Something else that would make a first century Orthodox Jew unclean coming in contact with a dead body. Jews weren't allowed to be around dead bodies except for in certain circumstances like a funeral. And even then they had to go be made ceremonial clean after they had come in contact with a dead body. So not only are they in Gentile country, not only are they in pig country, they're also on the outskirts of a cemetery and the first person that they meet is this dude who's been hanging out with dead bodies and this guy runs up to them and he's possessed by an evil spirit again if you're a first century Jew you definitely don't want to be around evil spirits you don't want to be around demons so just imagine what these disciples are experiencing in this moment as their boat comes to shore they're not only in Gentile country it's pigs tombs and evil spirits oh my I mean this was a crazy weird situation and the disciples they were probably about as uncomfortable as they could be. I dare say that when their boat came up to the shore, none of them wanted to get out of the boat. Except Jesus. Because Jesus knew there was one there who needed him. Mark tells us about this one who needed him. He says this man was intent on hurting himself. The passage says that he would cut himself with stones. You see, whether you realize it or not, we have an enemy who is intent on destroying us. The Bible says that Satan has been a murderer from the very beginning, meaning he wants to do whatever he possibly can to destroy our emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual health. And when we listen to his voice, Satan's voice, and follow his lies, he will always lead us down a path of destruction. And he'll use whatever means necessary to get us to go down that path. 
And that's what's apparently happened to this man in our passage. Now let me just clarify something. Satan cannot force us to do anything that we don't allow him to do. The Bible promises this. In James 4 verse 7 it says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God has given all of us free will. And Satan will only control our lives when we give him permission to do so. And apparently that's what, hap- that's what has happened to this man. At some point in his life, this man has opened himself up to demonic forces. He's allowed Satan to come in and take up residence in his heart. And now Satan is controlling him. And so we can understand why the disciples are weirded out. I mean, this guy cries out day and night. He screeches day and night, screams day and night. He lives in a graveyard. He hangs out with dead bodies. He runs around without any clothes on, and chains can't subdue him. I mean, the local people there are so scared of him, they keep chaining him down, and he keeps breaking their chains. We can understand why the disciples would be weirded out. Why in the world would Jesus want to leave a ministry on the other side of the lake where he's having all this ministry success, all these thousands of people responding to him and flocking to him to go here because there was one there who needed him and in Jesus' eyes no one is beyond hope even that one that man possessed by an evil spirit but you know sometimes we forget that sometimes we forget that no one is beyond hope I mean let's be honest we have a tendency at times to write people off long before God is finished with them And I just want to be transparent with you. One thing I hope you've learned about me since I've been here is I am who I am. By the grace of God, I am who I am. I'm not perfect. I don't try to put on a show. I don't try to to pretend to be someone I'm not. I hope that the guy that you meet during the week out uh, out on the sidewalk is the same guy that you see up here on Sunday mornings. I just try to be me. I'm just a guy. In fact, Allison and the kids and I, we went over to somebody's house in our church yesterday. We were hanging out with them for lunch, and they were asking questions about me, and I just kind of said, hey, I'm just a guy. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm just a guy. I'm a normal guy that struggles with sin, that's just trying to follow Jesus the best that I can, and we're all in this thing together. We're all following him together. That's me. And so because I'm not perfect and I don't pretend to be, I mean, some preachers do. They want to put on a show for you. I don't because I am who I am, and I try to be transparent with you. I want to let you know. Sometimes I write off people way too quick. Something else you need to know about me is I'm a pretty big UK basketball fan. Not sure if you're aware of that yet or not, but I'm a pretty big Kentucky basketball fan. And a couple years ago, I went to a game at Rupp Arena with a buddy of mine, and we had these great seats. It was a big game, and we came and we sat down in our seats, and I was so excited to watch this game. And uh, through, for the first 10 minutes of the game, I was sitting beside my friend, and on the other side, nobody sat down in that seat. It was an empty seat. So it was great. I had all this leg room, and it was just wonderful. And then about 10 minutes into the first half, a guy walks in who had the ticket to that seat, and he sits down. And this guy, he had been drinking a lot before the game. And you could tell by the way he was acting, but also you could tell because you could smell him from a mile away. And he came in and plopped down beside me, and immediately we became instant friends. At least in his mind, we became instant friends. And he started patting me on the back so hard he was knocking me out of my seat. And, hey, what's your name, buddy? And I said, I'm Chad. And, well, Chad, let me tell you. And he just starts talking. And he just talked and talked and talked. Tell me his whole life story. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to watch a game here. And he just would not stop jabbering, would not stop talking. He was very, very friendly and so I just listened to everything he was saying but at the same time I'm trying to watch the game and after a while I got kind of frustrated I was annoyed 
I paid good money for this seat. I wanted to watch the game. I didn't want to be distracted by him. And so I just kept thinking, I wish he'd shut up. And then I started to think, I wish I was sitting in any seat in this arena but this one. In fact, I kept waiting for my buddy to get up and go get some popcorn and go to the bathroom. I was going to take his seat, and then he would have to step aside when he came back. But he never got up. He knew my plan. I, I know he did. And so I'm sitting there getting more and more frustrated, more and more annoyed. And then the guy beside me starts using some inappropriate language and stuff. He's saying some words, and I'm sure glad my kids weren't there to hear it. And then he starts saying some more inappropriate stuff. He starts to point at the cheerleaders who are on the side of the court and saying things about them that he shouldn't have been saying. He started telling me some of the stuff he was doing before he came into the game. And it was way too much information, more than what I wanted to hear. And I felt really uncomfortable with some of the stuff he was saying. It was very inappropriate. And I remember sitting there just thinking, I wish I was in any seat in this place but this one that I'm in. And just then, that guy... <laughs> He said, hey, Chad, I've been doing all the talking. I'm thinking, yeah, there's a reason for that. He said, I've been doing all the talking. I don't know anything about you. Tell me about you. What do you, what do, you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, here it comes. You know, I hate to have that question asked because you just never know how somebody's going to respond. He said, what do you do for a living? And so I thought about saying, well, I'm in communications. You know, I thought that'd be a safe answer, but <laughs> I didn't do that. I said, well, I'm a preacher at a church. And he had this stunned look on his face, this shocked look on his face. And he said, you're a preacher? I never would have guessed that. Now, I never know how to take that when people say that. You're a preacher? I never would have guessed that. I normally take it as a compliment, but I'm not sure if that's what he meant. And I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. I said, you would not have guessed that? He said, no. And then what he said next got me. He said, because most preachers wouldn't give a crusty old man like me the time of day. And I was convicted in that moment. Because the entire time I've been thinking, man, I wish I was in any seat but this seat. And then it hit me, if Jesus were here at that game, that's the one seat he would have wanted to sit in. Because that was a man, that was one, who needed him. Sometimes I need to be reminded that Jesus can rewrite anyone's story. And maybe we lose sight of that truth because we forget about the hold that Satan once had on us. Now, personally, I've never been possessed by a demon or an evil spirit, I don't think at least, but I have let Satan have way, have way too much power over my life at times. Satan has had way too much influence over me at times. There have been times when I've listened to his voice and ignored God's. And I know that's probably true for all of us who are here today. We've all at some time or another been enslaved by some evil desire. And Satan will use things like cynicism and negativity and anger and loneliness and bitterness, lust, greed, selfishness, even religion to enslave us, to keep us from living the life that God created for us to live. We've all been there. And right now I imagine in your life there is someone who is enslaved by Satan right now. There is someone who is enslaved to some, uh, some sin right now. There is someone whose life is being destroyed by Satan right now and their only hope is for you, and I mean you, to introduce them to the one who can set them free. And that's what Jesus does for the man in our passage, Mark chapter 5. He sets him free. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 6 of Mark chapter 5. 
It says, when he, the man possessed by these evil spirits, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now I want you to notice something. How does this man possessed by an evil spirit, actually we find out it's multiple evil spirits, how does this man approach Jesus? The text says that he fell on his knees in front of Jesus. That Greek term is the word proskuneo. And it's a term for worship. It's a term that means to bow down in reverence before someone or something. This is what I find amazing. Even evil spirits, even demons know who's in charge. In the presence of Jesus, no demon ever tries to get into a fight. No demon ever tries to arm wrestle Jesus. They always back down. They always submit to him because they know who's in charge. And you know what ends up happening? Jesus kicks these demons, these evil spirits, out of this man and he sends them to a herd of pigs. And these pigs, they go crazy and they run off a cliff. They basically commit suicide. This is a crazy, strange, weird day. But as weird as this day is, it's a powerful day. Because the people of the village, the people of this local town, they heard about what happened, about all these pigs jumping off a cliff. And so they came out to see what happened. And look at what they saw when they came out to this scene. Verse 15 in Mark chapter 5. They saw the man who had been. Notice the past tense. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed He's not running around with any clothes on anymore, dressed and in his right mind. You see, Satan wants to enslave us, but Jesus wants to restore us. Jesus wants to restore us so we can live the life he designed us to live. He wants to set us free and give us the life God created us to live. And guys, no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what you're going through, no matter what temptation is in front of you, no matter what hold Satan has on you right now, Jesus has the power to set you free. And the same is true for that one in your life who's far from God. No matter what they're struggling with, no matter what they're facing, no matter what they're dealing with, no matter what the hold may be that Satan has on them, no matter what they are experiencing, Jesus has the power to set them free. Because Jesus has the power to set anyone free. I made the mention that I love basketball, and I do. When I was a kid, one of my favorite professional basketball players was Shaquille O'Neal. I loved Shaq because he was so big. You know, he was huge. I watched him back when he played for the Orlando Magic. Then he went to the Lakers, went to the Heat after that. I loved watching Shaq. And I remember one time I was watching Shaq when he was playing for the Lakers, and he got mad at a player, and he shoved him and knocked the guy to the ground. And so immediately, a referee, an official, he ran over to Shaq, blew his whistle, and he threw him out of the game. He pointed for him to leave the court because he had committed a flagrant foul. And I remember watching this play, I think, you know, this is kind of funny because this referee that ran up to Shaq, he was like half his size. I mean, he's a little scrawny guy, you know, and he ran up to Shaq. And if you've seen Shaquille O'Neal play, he's huge, you know, over seven feet tall and just a massive man, a man among men. And he is just this giant of a guy. And this little bitty scrawny referee runs up to Shaq, blows a whistle and says, leave, get off the court. And you know what Shaq does? He got off the court. And I was just amazed by that because Shaq, he could have picked this referee up and snapped him in two if he wanted to. But Shaq left. You know why? 
Because even though he was physically stronger than that little referee, that referee had authority that Shaq didn't have. And that's how it is when it comes to us in our spiritual lives. Is Satan more powerful than us? You bet he is, and we should never forget that. Satan is powerful, very powerful. And he's got more power than we individually have. He's got more power than all of us put together on our own. But here's the thing, when you invite Jesus to take up residence in your heart, when Jesus lives in you through his spirit, the one who lives in you is greater than the one who is in this world. You have power that Satan always bows down to. You have power within you coming through Jesus that Satan can't stand up to. Because you have Jesus living in you, you have an authority that makes the demons tremble and run and flee. That's, what I, that's why I love 1 John 4, 4, which says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. On our own, we can't beat Satan. On our own, we can't escape our captivity to sin. But when we give our lives to Jesus, he has the power to set anyone, any of us, free. So why did Jesus cross that lake? I used to think that it was to rebuke a thousand demons and show his power over evil. Well, he did that. He accomplished that. But I think it's more than that. He could have done that by some other means. He could have done that in some other place. Why did Jesus cross the lake at that moment, that day? Because Jesus wanted to teach his disciples something. He wanted to wake them up to a spiritual reality that I think sometimes we forget in the church today, and it's this. We should never write off anyone because Jesus came to rewrite everyone's story. Let me say that again. We never write off anyone because Jesus came to rewrite everyone's story. Even that one, even that Gentile, even that man possessed by an evil spirit, even the one running around naked, even the one living in tombs, even the one screaming day and night, even that one. See, Jesus came a long way to meet one who everyone else wanted to avoid. And what I find the most interesting is how this scene, how this passage ends. In verse 18 of Mark chapter 5, it says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And we understand that. I mean, that makes sense, right? Jesus just transformed this guy's life. He's just giving him a fresh start. Of course this guy wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus is always looking for another faithful disciple. So when this man comes up to Jesus, says, Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I want to come with you. Let me come with you and be part of your disciple group. We would expect Jesus to say, Of course, get in the boat. Come with us. But that's not what happens. Verse 19 says, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, Jesus doesn't let him come with them because Jesus knew there were still ones in his community, in his town, in his village who needed to know the one. There were still ones who needed to be released from their captivity. You see, Jesus releases people from prison so we can live on mission. Let me say that again. Jesus releases people from prison so we can live on mission. I'll put it another way. 
Someone needs your story. See, what Jesus told that man, you go back and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you, that's the same thing he's telling us. Someone needs your story. See, we are here for a purpose. We are here for a reason. You know what that purpose is? You know what that reason is? We are here to go there. We are here to go there. We're here to go out there to Gentile country. We're here to go out there across the lake. We're here to go there. Those places that make us feel uncomfortable. Those places where no one else wants to go. We're here to go there. That's why God has placed His church on the earth to go out to the highways and the byways and bring anyone we can find back home. That's why Jesus has placed First Church right here at this point in history and time to go out there to those who are hurting and lost throughout the 918 and bring them home. We're here to go there. The reason why we meet here in this place every single Sunday is so that we can be equipped and prepared to go out there. We're not here just to come to church and be entertained. We're here to go and live on mission out there every single day because someone out there needs your story. Someone out there needs to hear how Jesus changed your life. Someone out there needs to hear how Jesus transformed you. Someone out there needs your story. Because I guarantee there is someone right now in your life who is just one conversation, one prayer, one tear, one invitation away from freedom. And I imagine that right now, there is someone listening to this message today, someone listening to my voice today, who's just one conversation, one step of faith away from freedom. And if that's you, I want you to know today, Jesus came to rewrite your story. And if you've already found him, if he's already rewritten your story, don't keep that story to yourself. Jesus releases us from prison so we can live on mission. And I believe when we as a church understand that we're here to go there, God will use us in ways beyond our imaginations. There's someone out there waiting for you waiting for you to introduce them to the one who can rewrite their story. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today, for this chance we've had to open up your word, and we pray that we don't just listen to what your word has to say, the example that your son gives us, and walk away and say, yeah, that was a great, that was a great passage of scripture. Those are some great points. Father, we pray that we apply them, that we take them to heart, that we let them convict our hearts and we realize that we're here to go there. God, continue to stir a missional movement within us so that you use First Church in ways like you never have before. 
And Father, I pray if there's anybody right now listening to my voice who's just one decision, one invitation, one move away from freedom, don't let them walk away here ignoring that. Father, I pray if there's anybody in here who needs the freedom that your son offers that they find it today. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the love that he has shown us. And it's through his powerful name I pray. Amen.